This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. I'm Marcus Costello. This is the last live show for 2016, and that means instead of the week's biggest three issues, it's the year's biggest issues. We're looking back over the year in media affairs, and for the first time, we're doing something a little bit differently. We have a camera in the corner of the room. Olivia, my producer, is holding an iPhone and broadcasting live on Facebook Live so that... Users can listen in and comment and will put their comments to the panel live in the studio. The panel with me here is Jonathan Perlman, freelance writer. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Marcus. Sitting next to Jonathan is Brianna Parkins from ABC. Hey, Brianna. How are you doing? I'm doing well. And Lisa Byzantina, how are you doing? Well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing very well. All right. Before we get into it, I want to go around the table and hear from you guys about what were your biggest stories of the year? Like, what were your biggest stories or Twitter fights or like mistakes that you made, uh, things that you learned, things that you'll remember about 2016. Jonathan? Um, I mean, for me, it would probably be the Australian election. Um, the result was certainly not what I was expecting. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I sort of told, I was filing for um, foreign media and I told my editors that, that we'd probably have the result in early um, uh, easily in time for our sort of morning deadlines over there um, and and of course we didn't so um, uh, you know I suppose we we could have paid more attention to, to some of the polls I don't think the polls were entirely wrong um, but um, you know I certainly sort of misread that election but it turned out to be a great story um, you know for it's good, certainly for, for journalists. It's made Canberra more interesting um, and the scene down there more interesting. Um, I suppose that the story that I would have loved to have been covering was the American election um, for a similar but more dramatic reasons. Um, Plenty of journos over there jumped the gun and started writing as if it was a Hillary win. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it was it was um, far more dramatic than the, than the Turnbull kind of um, collapse here. But, um, yeah, that... that, that that would have been exciting. And we'll definitely be talking about the way that Trump blindsided the media later on in the show. But Brianna, what about you? What was your most memorable story for this year? I won't go into the Twitter fights because there's, there's been way <laughs> too many and way too memorable. Um, I think it's it's a it's a, probably a tie between um, a suite of stories that we have done on journalists using Instagram and kind of the blurring of the lines between journalists and influencers who basically get paid or given are given free stuff um, in exchange for Twitter and Facebook shout outs. And when you're a journalist, do you do sort of the normal rules apply? Um, it turns out that a lot of uh, news companies, news channels haven't even thought that far ahead. So you get this really sort of blurring between editorial and commercial lines that, that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. 
Um, and it's definitely got us taken off a lot of Christmas cards list, <laughs> especially for <laughs> TV presenters. Oh, wow. And the other one was, uh, I think, the, the Bill Lee cartoon, the 18C. Um, there was a lot of debate in the Media Watch office at the time about, you know, it's freedom of speech and, and offending people shouldn't override that. But then we sort of came to the conclusion that, you know, you call it out, you move past it and you go on, but you have to call it out first. And Lisa, how about you? Uh, I won't mention the Twitter fights either because none of them are memorable. And I'd have to well, the internet they, has they a never memory. <laughs> you can always consult the that's internet. That's true, that's true. Um, look, the story that's uh, probably stayed with me uh, throughout the year was uh, the one of uh, Michelle Leng. She was an international student uh, in Sydney um, and she started off the week as a missing person um, and then by the end of the week her body had been discovered in a blowhole off the New South Wales coast. Um, she'd been stabbed multiple times and then uh, a few days after her body was discovered her uncle was charged uh, with her murder and that's playing out in the courts now and it was just a a horrible uh, devastating story that just unraveled uh, as the week progressed and was a huge story in Sydney because it sort of happened in this around the CBD area um, although obviously her um, her body was dumped, you know, off the coast of New South Wales, um, and a big, big story for the the big Chinese international community that's here. Wow! All right, so getting into the big issues that took the media world by storm. Um, first up tonight is how the right won the media game. So it seems like all around the world, the right has been on the rise. And speaking about Trump's win, the Herald Sun's Rita Bahini wrote, quote, the election result serves as a wake-up call to the sneering media and political ruling classes whose disdain for the mainstream will ultimately be their undoing. I want to go around and hear what you guys make of that quote. Is it that the quote-unquote ruling class has disdain for the general population or is it that there's a disconnect? John? I think there's a disconnect. Um, I don't, you know, I think the the, the mainstream media, as it's now called um, in the US, did did an excellent job of covering this election. Uh, and, you know, particularly the New York Times and the Washington Post, which I assume are, are sort of contained in that sort of um, establishment media attack. Um, the problem, so uh, you know, I, I don't think they necessarily take a, a sneering attack to, um, to towards or sneering line towards to, towards the public over there, um, but there is there is a disconnect. I mean, there are like the the readership, the the audience in 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 the US um, seems to be very divided, and and a lot of people just aren't paying attention to those media outlets. Are paying attention to to different media outlets, so. There seems to be the, 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 a disconnect, and I think it's caused by this massive fragmentation, um, which has a lot to do with this new online world, where um, you know there just seem to be massive amounts of of, of um, information out there on differing sites, and readers and audiences don't necessarily, you know, they tune into what they they want to tune into, and there's something going on, I think, before the stage at which. Um, you know the, the 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 disconnect happens. There's, the, 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 there are sort of deeper reasons why um, various segments of the of the public in America and other countries are tuning into to kind of frag- this fragmented media landscape. Talking about some of those fringe dwellers, how concerned are you guys about the rise of far right, quite extreme, and 
unorthodox sites like Breitbart. Um, as we know, Steve Bannon, Breitbart's editor, has recently been um, absorbed into the Trump transition team as Trump's head of chief of staff. Um, but Breitbart is increasingly capturing the imaginations of the right, and it's espousing some pretty cool, pretty radical stories. How concerned are you that these that the fringe is moving into the centre and that or at least more people are getting their news from more sources and that this disconnected media landscape means that nobody has control of the message? I think the problem with disconnect and sort of moving away from like the far right and the fringe, um, I think the problem is that journalists and the media, they're not sneering, um, there's no media elite, but the problem is the lack of diversity. So in Australia, PwC conducted... Um, a survey, they found that the average male media worker is a male 27 years old and lives in the eastern suburbs and that is just not reflective of our audience in Australia. So we're having things like journalists saying, oh, I wouldn't have ever met someone who would vote for Trump or Hanson. That is a huge bloody problem because a lot of people do. Um, I will go have Christmas lunch with them as my family um, in about a month's time. Um, But there's this real issue of you've got, I think it's a two-pronged thing where you've got sort of journalists living in a bubble where they're talking to other journalists, they're living in the eastern suburbs, they're living a very privileged, very Anglo-Saxon sort of life. Um, and they're not sort of, there's a big disconnect between them and, and working class uh, men particularly who are losing their jobs through post-industrialization, who are getting angrier, um, who are living in areas affected by immigration, who are looking people to blame. And the secondary problem is uh, lots of models of journalism are moving to sort of sitting at a desk and churning and burning stories all day. So you're not having time to actually go out and get into pubs and talk to people, um, which was happening in the regions and those papers are folding too. So you've got the double prong issue of not actually being able to leave the office and talk to people. And secondly, people sort of getting stories off Twitter, which is no real people actually use Twitter. It's a sort of an echo chamber for journalists. So I think if you tackle those two things, you're going to see a decline of fringe media. Yeah, I think you really can't see this issue without looking at the decline of um, big newsrooms uh, and the limited resources that we are now working with. Um, with as, as Brianna said, we're now seeing the rural papers all but um, disappear. So you're losing that ability to capture voices out there, the grievances that they have, some of them are very legitimate. Al- almost all of our media is concentrated Uh, on the eastern seaboard. It's coming out of Sydney, it's coming out of Canberra, it's coming out of Melbourne, and it's coming out of very specific parts of those cities. Um, And, you know, I I really think that's played a big role in the rise of Hansenism and the backlash against the two major parties, but it's also on them because they haven't been uh, appealing to their grievances either. Talking about the rise of Hansenism and, for that matter, Trumpism, uh, Hanson and Trump are two political operatives who don't like to engage with the quote-unquote mainstream media, and so they take it uh, upon themselves to broadcast to their own loyalists. So Hanson likes to use Facebook Live and make Facebook videos. Uh, the news will then pick those up, but essentially she's containing the message. And then you've got Trump, who, as we all know, likes to use Twitter, and this week made a bit of a fool himself tweeting about... Um, Saturday Night Live parroting him tweeting and yet he still doesn't get the message but then it doesn't seem to backlash that much because he's talking to his loyalists so I wonder to what extent are these politicians made by social media like is it that they are where they are not 
despite what they say in a really outlandish way, but because of it, because we're all talking to our own networks and we all talk in our own language. And when we see somebody who's like us talking, then we're more inclined to vote for them. And uh, a lot of us do maybe talk, maybe maybe there are people out there who have locker room talk and sure. maybe when they see that, um, it endears someone like sure. Trump to them. I, I think it's really myopic though to see Trump and Hansenism as a product of social media. Um, they are a product of... Uh, a number of things, but particularly uh, what we were saying before, the grievances out there that aren't being picked up upon. I mean, Trump very cleverly targeted his campaign to a certain part of America that Hillary Clinton completely ignored, um, often to the extent that she didn't even campaign uh, in in some towns that... Yeah, 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 in the Rust Belt. Um, yes, it, social media helps uh, build a wall around them, <laughs> to use a Trumpism, I guess, um, that uh, like, uh, secure, uh, inoculates them, I guess, from critique to a certain extent and allows them to um, pinpoint their message to, to their class. And that's going to be a huge challenge for journalists to, to break that bubble. All right, we're going to move along because we've got a lot to cut through because we are trying to cover the year in news for 2016. So, Nauru... In the biggest leak ever published from Australia's immigration detention system, Guardian Australia released the Nauru Files, 2,000 first-hand incident reports from the centre. Immigration Minister Peter Dutton claimed refugees on Nauru fabricated the stories and warned people not to believe the, quote, hype. John, how valuable is this information to the public? Immigration Minister Peter Dutton says it's not. What do you think? I mean, I I think the information is very valuable, but I think that... um it's it's you know I think unfortunately it's it's descended into some sort of um, debate where a lot of people aren't listening anymore. Um, so you know if 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 the Nauru files didn't have the kind of punch that 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 maybe they should have, I think it's partly because there might be just fatigue about an issue that um, you know that's been going on a long time. Um, the government just comes out with, with, with pretty much the same stock standard responses continually, which is to, um, which is to knock down these sorts of stories to, you know, um, to deny and discredit. Um, and just by doing that, I mean, I think it's effectively just created a kind of, um, two-sided issue and that two-sided issue has just, just continued for years now. So a lot of people have probably already made their minds up, I think. And Brianna, what do you think of the approach if you've been given leaked information to simply put it online for the public to consume? Do you think it's a journalist's role to act as an intermediary, look at the content, validate it, comment on it, and then broadcast it? Look, when you're dealing with you know, the sheer masses of... It depends how big the, the file size is, to be honest, but I think it's a journalist's job to write the story to when they're fact-checking, to do their cross-checks on the information they're writing in the story, and then to sort of put a caveat going here, we've put out the rest. This stuff hasn't been fact-checked. It's up to you to do your own checks. But this stuff that we've written about, this has been cross-checked and verified. I think that should be the role. I still think it should be public available. Relying on leaked information or smuggled footage is one thing, but journalists can actually apply for at a very hefty fee to access Nauru. Channel 9's A Current Affair was the only Australian news outlet to be approved access to film one episode on Nauru, and ACA's anchor, Tracy Grimshaw, 
um, admitted that she was surprised that her program was granted approval. The Nauruan government has said that only, quote, respectful and objective media outlets are welcome and that extreme left activist journalists are refused access because they want to incite violence. Now, Brianna, you work at one of those extreme <laughs> left activist <laughs> journalist uh, organisations, otherwise known as yeah. our national public broadcaster, the ABC. Why do you think the ACA was given access where the ABC wasn't? Look, can I just start off and say this might be a rare thing, but as a Media Watch um, employee, I actually love the current affair. Like, I bloody love it. Um, <laughs> Is it I, because it just writes itself no, when you, know you come what? to producing yeah, a show? Actually, no. I, we haven't <laughs> featured a current affair for a long time. We think it's because today, tonight's folded, so they've had, they hadn't had to have compete anymore, so they've been able to really sort of do good stories. But there's a place for that journalism, I mean, they get people, they take on telcos, you know, they, they fight for the little guy, you know, I'm all for ACA. But they're not known for their... Uh, how I put this delicately, they're not known for their international affairs, they're not known for their deep investigative stuff. I, I think the Nauru government think they were being thrown a softball and, and they did. I mean, we watched the show in anticipation that there might have been a stuff up, but we really couldn't fault ACA. They did show both sides, but they didn't really dig too deeply. All right, you're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Marcus Costello, and I'm in the studio with John, Jonathan Perlman, Brianna Parkins and Lisa Visenten. We're going through the year in media affairs issues and up now is Indigenous affairs. So clicktivist and keyboard warrior are terms that get levelled at people who sign online petitions. But people checking in at Standing Rock Reservation from all over the world focus the world's media attention. So my question to the panel is, to what extent do you think social media won the fight to divert the Dakota Access Pipeline? Brianna. I really haven't. I've followed it to an extent, but I don't want to make a judgment call on, you know, whether it was social media or whether it was the huge presence and the huge encampment. I think it was the second. I think it was the latter. Um, But I will say that in Australia, social media has been a great organising tool for Indigenous groups. For example, a couple of years ago, um, Auntie Jenny Munro and a couple of the other elders from Redfern organised a tent embassy to basically fight for more rights and more say in Indigenous housing as the block was getting torn down. And they use that Facebook group to go, hey, guys, can you bring us a generator or can someone bring us some warm blankets? And it was really this awesome focal point. And and I think a lot of the things that they did win got achieved by organising through Facebook. So that's one example of it working, but only if it had that physical presence of activism. I'm not sure just checking in, you can really claim that as a win. Just the other week... Uh Radio National announced cuts to their 2017 lineup. It will be shifting to a primarily talks program. Much of their music is gone. But there will be more Indigenous voices on the radio. There will be three new Indigenous um, producers. Um, my question is, if we're getting more uh, news by Aboriginal people, about um, Aboriginal people, do you hope for more good news stories? Or is it a matter of telling the truth and that life is just harder being an Indigenous person in Australia in 2017? Look, I think you need to... The story should be reflective of people's realities and, yeah, I do think that there's going to be more negative stories and more kind of frustrating stories about levels of oppression. You've got, you know, stolen wages, you've got Dundale, you've got youth incarceration, you've got domestic violence rates. Those things are all coming out. 
But there have also been a lot of good news stories that don't necessarily get picked up because people, they're not sexy. So stuff like native language coming back in, people reviving previously almost dead languages. Um, you've got, uh, for example, a lot of regional papers do really good work about Indigenous people um, and their work in the communities and that self-determination. Down in Wollongong, there's a group of men who, through no money, um, put together a domestic violence offender rehabilitation program so stories like that who that come out of the regions might not get out anymore because there's huge cuts to regional papers so i think that those reporters that do take up the role will have to probably search a little bit harder um but they're there if you find them they just if you can't find them you're not looking hard enough basically jonathan aboriginal and indigenous media have tended to kind of focus on indigenous audiences and um and I think having more Indigenous voices speaking to broader audiences mm. is a really good thing. Um, I think that, um, you know, there will be a lot of um, sort of hopefully um, stories that do tap in to issues that, that aren't, aren't being covered. And also, I mean, with the, um, you know, the, the bigger newspapers, the bigger media outlets have all tended to kind of reduce their coverage of Indigenous affairs in the last sort of 10 years. Um, it's, you know, if you, opened a, if you opened the newspapers 20 years ago, you'd find, you'd find streams of coverage and that's just not there. So, um, yeah, I, th- I think it's great. I think it would be great to have that, those additional voices. Credit where credit's due. Um, BuzzFeed does uh, have Alan Clark, who is, who is a beat reporter yeah. for um, Indigenous Affairs and... SBS, of course, has um, uh, NITV. Um, But as you say, um, if we're broadcasting on Radio National and it's a linear linear broadcast that is going out to the masses and not um, a channel that is just for one set of people, um, then we're actually getting a broader message and hopefully a more unified, cohesive Mm. um, message that's getting out there. All right, we're moving on because we've got (laughs) a lot to get to do. Um, All right. So the Panama Papers, we can't go past this. This was absolutely massive. It involved hundreds of journalists in dozens of countries scrutinising more than 11 million files in a massive trove of leaked documents belonging to a powerful law firm in Panama, Mossack Fonseca. Over the course of a year, this unprecedented network of journalists uncovered a shadowy web of tax avoidance schemes by world leaders and business magnates around the globe. The Panama Papers have led to investigations in 80 countries and new laws are being proposed in the US to better track dirty money. Journalism, especially long-form investigative journalism, is desperately innovating to stay afloat at the moment. So I just wonder, could this kind of global collaboration be the beginning of a radically new model for how to get investigative stories out there? Lisa? (laughs) Uh, Look, I think something like the Panama Papers is part of the future but it's not the future and the part that it is is a very small part um you know it relies on big data dumps um something else that comes to mind that was similar was the the collaborative effort between uh the new york times and the guardian over wikileaks these stories come up maybe once or twice a year if that i mean when you compare them to the sheer enormous output of big newsrooms um, like the New York Times, the Wash Po, which you know at, at the moment is claiming to publish a story every minute of the day, um, it's 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 nothing. It's a drop in the bucket that it makes a big splash, um, but I think it's only it's only part of the future. 
Talking about that collaboration there between The Guardian and The New York Times, it was interesting to see that The New York Times wasn't involved in the Panama Papers investigation. So they are arguably the preeminent news provider in the world. They are the reference source there, who we look to for how to do good work. But they decided to stay away from this. Um, And albeit that it made it into the New York Times, it wasn't a front page story for that day. So if a story has public interest, but it doesn't necessarily have commercial viability, to what extent do you think it's incumbent upon something like the New York Times to make sure that that is front page news? I mean, I'm surprised that they didn't get involved. It'd be interesting to know mm. to know why. Um, uh, you know, I think Gerald Gerard Ryle, who's ex Sydney Morning Herald journalist, sort of oversaw that whole operation and reached out to a sort of network of investigative journalists around the world. So it'd be interesting to know whether he reached out to anyone from the New York Times or whether there's no one from the New York Times on his radar. They should certainly be covering um, any issues like this. Um, and uh, it, yeah, it was a it was a huge story, definitely worth um, including in this media wrap up for the year. Um, and um, yeah, I'm, I mean, I don't like I don't know why I don't think there'd be anything sinister behind why they didn't cover it. Um, but this big story should have been should have been on their front page for sure. The last big story that we have um, circled to cover for today's uh, episode of Fourth Estate is mass layoffs. And there've been a few of them around the world, including uh, at the places of employment of everyone in this room, actually. So earlier this year, Fairfax announced it would seek cost reductions equivalent to 120 full-time jobs from its newsrooms in response to difficult market conditions. And this week, News Corps is making 42 journalists, artists and photographers redundant in the latest rounds of cost-cutting in a bid to slash $40 million. In Sydney, earlier this year, journalists wearing Fair Go Fairfax t-shirts were supported by New South Wales opposition leader Luke Foley and Greens MP David Shoebridge outside the Sydney Morning Herald's office in Piermont. Mr Foley said journalists at the newspaper were vital because he didn't want to live in a, quote, one newspaper town. Lisa, this is your employer. It is. Uh, what was the mood like? How do you feel? Uh, it was devastating that yeah. day. Um, it's, it's, of course, it's going to be bleak, but um, I think this is the new normal. I mean, we kind of all know that this is the new normal. Um, it's we're at the Sydney Morning Herald and Fairfax Media, we're beholden to shareholders, um, which means profit is uh, is a big issue um, that plays into, obviously, commercial viabilities of stories um, and the integrity of the news that we cover and how we balance those two things. But it also means that um, what was once a very top-heavy newsroom um, has to be or is going to be constantly scaled back. Um, what that endpoint is, we don't know. Um, the the line that had a lot of traction back in March when I think these layoffs were, were announced was that this is death by a thousand cuts. Um, and I think these cuts are just going to keep coming for quite some time. I think reducing, you know, this talk of going, getting rid of the Monday to Friday paper, and I think that will really reduce the paper's influence. Um, you know, MPs around Australia pick up the newspaper first thing in the morning, have a look what's on the front page, um, and, you know, that as to other media outlets, and that's what drives the agenda. And I think, um, you know, I think if those newspapers go... Um, it's going. It's going to sort of badly affect the Sydney Morning Herald's overall reach. 
It's a really, really sad note <laughs> to end this episode. And with ending this episode, that's the end of Fourth Estate's live broadcast for 2016. So I want to thank everyone for coming on the show today. John Pellman. Thanks. Brianna Parkins. Thank you. Lisa Visenten. Thanks. See you in the new year. Thank you. We hope to have you all back. And if thank we still you. have jobs. Yeah. yeah, if we still have jobs. All right. Well, you're welcome to come down to Community Radio and hang out with us. And thank you to all the journos who've joined us every week for this year. That's it for 2016. My name's Marcus Costello. Up next is On The Money. Thanks for joining us.